now, Tarzan of the Apes, Chapter 10, The Fear Phantom. From a lofty perch, Tarzan viewed the village of thatched huts across the intervening plantation. He saw that at one point the forest touched the village, and to this spot he made his way, lured by a fever of curiosity to behold animals of his own kind, and to learn more of their ways, and view the strange lairs in which they lived. His savage life among the fierce wild brutes of the jungle left no opening for any thought that these could aught be else than enemies. Similarity of form led him into no erroneous conception of the welcome that would be accorded him should he be discovered by these, the first of his own kind he had ever seen. Tarzan of the Apes was no sentimentalist. He knew nothing of the brotherhood of man. All things outside his own tribe were his deadly enemies, with the few exceptions of which Tantor, the elephant, was a marked example. And he realized all this without malice or hatred. To kill was the law of the wild world he knew. Few were his primitive pleasures, but the greatest of these was to hunt and kill, and so he accorded to others the right to cherish the same desires as he, even though he himself might be the object of their hunt. His strange life had left him neither morose nor bloodthirsty. That he joyed in killing, and that he killed with a joyous laugh upon his handsome lips, betokened no innate cruelty. He killed for food most often, but, being a man, he sometimes killed for pleasure, a thing which no other animal does, for it has remained the man alone among all creatures to kill senselessly and wantonly for the mere pleasure of inflicting suffering and death. And when he killed for revenge or in self-defense, he did that also without hysteria, for it was a very business-like proceeding which admitted of no levity. So it was that now, as he cautiously approached the village of Mumbanga, he was quite prepared either to kill or be killed should he be discovered. He proceeded with unwanted stealth, for Kulanga had taught him great respect for the little sharp splinters of wood which dealt death so swiftly and unerringly. At length he came to a great tree, heavy laden with thick foliage and loaded with pendant loops of giant creepers. From this almost impenetrable bower above the village he crouched, looking down upon the scene below him, wondering over every feature of this new, strange life. There were naked children running and playing in the village street. There were women grinding dried plantain in crude stone mortars, while others were fashioning cakes from powdered flour. Out in the fields he could see still other women hoeing, weeding, or gathering. All were strange, protruding girdles of dried grass about their hips, and many were loaded with brass and copper anklets, armlets, and bracelets. Around many a dusky neck hung curiously coiled strands of wire, while several were further ornamented by huge nose rings. Tarzan of the apes looked with growing wonder at these strange creatures. Dozing in the shade, he saw several men, while at the extreme outskirts of the clearing, he occasionally caught glimpses of armed warriors apparently guarding the village against surprise from an attacking enemy. He noticed that the women alone worked. Nowhere was there evidence of a man tilling the fields or performing any of the homely duties of the village. Finally, his eyes rested upon a woman directly beneath him. Before her was a small cauldron standing over a low fire, and in it bubbled a thick, reddish, tarry mass. On one side of her lay a quantity of wooden arrows 
the points of which she dipped into the seething substance, then laying them upon a narrow rack of boughs which stood upon her other side. Tarzan of the Apes was fascinated. Here was the secret of the terrible destructiveness of the archer's tiny missiles. He noted the extreme care which the woman took that none of the matters should touch her hands, and once when a particle spattered upon one of her fingers, he saw her plunge the member into a vessel of water and quickly rub the tiny stain away with a handful of leaves. Tarzan knew nothing of poison, but his shrewd reasoning told him that it was this deadly stuff that killed, and not the little arrow, which was merely the messenger that carried it into the body of its victim. How he should like to have more of those little death-dealing slivers. If the woman would only leave her work for an instant, he could drop down, gather up a handful, and be back in the tree again before she drew three breaths. As he was trying to think out some plan to distract her attention, he heard a wild cry from across the clearing. He looked and saw a black warrior standing beneath the very tree in which he had killed the murderer of Kala an hour before. The fellow was shouting and waving his spear above his head. Now and again he would point to something on the ground before him. The village was in an uproar instantly. Armed men rushed from the interior of many a hut and raced madly across the clearing toward the excited sentry. After them trooped the old men and the women and children until, in a moment, the village was deserted. Tarzan of the apes knew that they had found the body of his victim but that interested him far less than the fact that no one remained in the village to prevent his taking a supply of the arrows which lay below him. Quickly and noiselessly he dropped to the ground beside the cauldron of poison. For a moment he stood motionless, his quick, bright eyes scanning the interior of the palisade. No one was within sight. His eyes rested upon the open doorway of a nearby hut. He would take a look within, thought Tarzan, and so... Cautiously, he approached the low-thatched building. For a moment he stood without, listening intently. There was no sound, and he glided into the semi-darkness of the interior. Weapons hung against the walls, long spears, strangely shaped knives, a couple of narrow shields. In the center of the room was a cooking pot, and at the far end a litter of dry grasses covered by woven mats which evidently served the owners as beds and bedding. Several human skulls lay upon the floor. Tarzan of the apes felt of each article, hefted the spears, smelled of them, for he saw largely through his sensitive and highly trained nostrils. He determined to own one of these long-pointed sticks, but he could not take one on this trip because of the arrows he meant to carry. As he took each article from the walls, he placed it in a pile in the center of the room. On top of all, he placed the cooking pot, inverted, and on top of this he laid one of the grinning skulls, upon which he fastened the headdress of the dead Kulanga. Then he stood back, surveyed his work, and grinned. Tarzan of the Apes enjoyed a joke. But now he heard, outside, the sounds of many voices, and long, mournful howls, and mighty wailing. He was startled. Had he remained too long? Quickly he reached the doorway and peered down the village street toward the village gate. The natives were not yet in sight, though he could plainly hear them approaching across the plantation. They must be very near. 
Like a flash, he sprang across the opening to the pile of arrows. Gathering up all he could carry under one arm, he overturned the seething cauldron with a kick and disappeared into the foliage above, just as the first of the returning natives entered the gate at the far end of the village street. Then he turned to watch the proceeding below, poised like some wild bird ready to take swift wing at the first sign of danger. The natives filled up the street, four of them bearing the dead body of Kulanga. Behind trailed the women, uttering strange cries and weird lamentation. On they came to the portals of Kulanga's hut, the very one in which Tarzan had wrought his depredations. Scarcely had half a dozen entered the building ere they came rushing back out in wild, jabbering confusion. The others hastened to gather about. There was much excited gesticulating, pointing, and chattering. Then several of the warriors approached and peered within. Finally, an old fellow with many ornaments of metal about his arms and legs and a necklace of dried human hands depending upon his chest entered the hut. It was Mbanga, the king, father of Kulanga. For a few moments, all was silent. Then Umbanga emerged, a look of mingled wrath and superstitious fear writ upon his hideous countenance. He spoke a few words to the assembled warriors, and in an instant the men were flying through the little village, searching minutely every hut and corner within the palisade. Scarcely had the search commenced than the overturned cauldron was discovered, and with it the theft of the poisoned arrows. Nothing more they found, and it was a thoroughly awed and frightened group of savages which huddled around their king a few moments later. Umbanga could explain nothing of the strange events that had taken place. The finding of the still warm body of Kulanga, on the very verge of their fields, and within easy earshot of the village, knifed and stripped at the door of his father's home, was in itself sufficiently mysterious. But these last awesome discoveries within the village within the dead Kulanga's own hut, filled their hearts with dismay and conjured in their poor brains only the most frightful of superstitious explanations. They stood in little groups, talking in low tones, and ever casting a frightened glances behind them from their great rolling eyes. Tarzan of the apes watched them for a while from his lofty perch in the great tree. There was much in their demeanor that he could not understand, for of superstition he was ignorant, and of fear of any kind he had but a vague conception. The sky was high in the heavens. Tarzan had not broken fast this day, and it was many miles to where lay the toothsome remains of Horta the boar. So he turned his back upon the village of Umbanga and melted away into the leafy fastness of the forest. Chapter 11 King of the Apes It was not yet dark when he reached the tribe, though he stopped to exhume and devour the remains of the wild boar he had catched the preceding day, and again to take Kulanga's bow and arrows from the treetop in which he had hidden them. It was a well-laden Tarzan who dropped from the branches into the midst of the tribe of Kerchak. With swelling chest he narrated the glories of his adventure and exhibited the spoils of conquest. Kerchak grunted and turned away for he was jealous of this strange member of his band. In his little evil brain, he sought for some excuse to wreak his hatred upon Tarzan. The next day Tarzan was practicing with his bow and arrows at the first gleam of dawn. At first he lost nearly every bolt he shot, 
but finally he learned to guide the little shafts with fair accuracy. And ere a month had passed, he was no mean shot, but his proficiency had cost him nearly his entire supply of arrows. The tribe continued to find the hunting good in the vicinity of the beach, and so Tarzan of the Apes varied his archery practice with further investigations of his father's choice through the little store of books. It was during this period that the young English lord found hidden in the back of one of the cupboards in a cabin a small metal box. The key was in the lock, and a few moments of investigation and experimentation were rewarded with the successful opening of the receptacle. In it he found a faded photograph of a smooth-faced young man. A golden locket studded with diamonds linked to a small gold chain, a few letters, and a small book. Tarzan examined these all minutely. The photograph he liked most of all, for the eyes were smiling and the face was open and frank. It was his father. The locket, too, took his fancy, and he placed the chain about his neck in imitation of the ornamentation he had seen to be so common among the black men he had visited. The brilliant stones gleamed strangely against his smooth, brown hide. The letters he could scarcely decipher, for he had learned little or nothing of script. So he put them back in the box with the photograph and turned his attention to the book. This was almost entirely filled with fine script, but while the little bugs were all familiar to him, their arrangement and the combinations in which they occurred were strange and entirely incomprehensible. Tarzan had long since learned the use of the dictionary, but much to his sorrow and perplexity, it proved of no avail to him in this emergency. Not a word of all that was written in the book could he find, and so he put it back in the metal box, but with a determination to work out the mysteries of it later on. Little did he know that this book held between its covers the key to his origin, the answer to the strange riddle of his strange life. It was the diary of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, kept in French, as had always been his custom. Tarzan replaced the box in the cupboard, but always thereafter he carried the features of the strong, smiling face of his father in his heart, and in his head a fixed determination to solve the mystery of the strange words in the little black book. At present he had more important business in hand, for his supply of arrows was exhausted, and he must needs journey to the black men's village and renew it. Early the following morning he set out, and, traveling rapidly, he came before midday to the clearing. Once more he took up his position in the great tree, and as before, he saw the women in the fields and the village street and the cauldron of bubbling poison directly beneath him. For hours he lay awaiting his opportunity to drop down unseen and gather up the arrows for which he had come, but nothing now occurred to call the villagers away from their homes. The day wore on, and still Tarzan of the Apes crouched above the unsuspecting woman at the cauldron. Presently the workers in the fields returned. The hunting warriors emerged from the forest, and when all were within the palisade, the gates were closed and barred. Many cooking pots were now in evidence about the village. Before each hut, a woman presided over a boiling stew, while little cakes of plantain and cassava puddings were to be seen on every hand. Suddenly there came a hail from the edge of the clearing. Tarzan looked. It was a party of belated hunters returning from the north, 
and among them they half-led, half-carried a struggling animal. As they approached the village, the gates were thrown open to admit them, and then, as the people saw the victim of the chase, a savage cry rose to the heavens, for the quarry was a man. And as he was dragged, still resisting, into the village street, the women and children set upon him with sticks and stones, and Tarzan of the apes, young and savage beast of the jungle, wondered at the cruel brutality of his own kind. Sheeta the leopard, alone of all the jungle folk, tortured his prey. The ethics of all the others meted a quick and merciful death to their victim. Tarzan had learned from his books, but scattered fragments of the ways of human beings. When he had followed Kulanga through the forest, he had expected to come to a city of strange houses on wheels, puffing clouds of black smoke from a huge tree stuck in the roof of one of them. Or to a sea covered with mighty floating buildings, which he had learned were called, variously, ships and boats and steamers and craft. He had been sorely disappointed with the poor little village of the blacks, hidden away in his own jungle, and with not a single house as large as his own cabin upon the distant beach. He saw that these people were more wicked than his own apes, and as savage and cruel as Saber herself. Tarzan began to hold his own kind in low esteem. Now they had tied their poor victim to a great post near the center of the village, directly before Mbonga's hut, and here they formed a dancing, yelling circle of warriors about him, alive with flashing knives and menacing spears. In a larger circle squatted the women, yelling and beating upon drums. It reminded Tarzan of the dum-dum, and so he knew what to expect. He wondered if they would spring upon their meat while it was still alive. The apes did not do such things as that. The circle of warriors about the cringing captive drew closer and closer to their prey as they danced in wild and savage abandon to the maddening music of the drums. Presently a spear reached out and pricked the victim. It was the signal for fifty others. Eyes, ears, arms, and legs were pierced. Every inch of the poor writhing body that did not cover a vital organ became the target of the cruel lancers. The women and children shrieked to their delight. The warriors licked their hideous lips in anticipation of the feast to come and vied with one another in the savagery and loathsomeness of the cruel indignities with which they tortured the still conscious prisoner. Then it was that Tarzan of the apes saw his chance. All eyes were fixed upon the thrilling spectacle at the stake. The light of day had given place to the darkness of a moonless night, and only the fires in the immediate vicinity of the orgy had been kept alight to cast a relentless glow upon the restless scene. Gently the lithe boy dropped to the soft earth at the end of the village street. Quickly he gathered up the arrows, all of them this time, for he had brought a number of long fibers to bind them into a bundle. Without haste he wrapped them securely, and then, ere he turned to leave, the devil of capriciousness entered his heart. He looked about for some hint of a wild prank to play upon these strange, grotesque creatures that they might be again aware of his presence among them. Dropping his bundle of arrows at the foot of the tree, Tarzan crept among the shadows at the side of the street until he came to the same hut he had entered on the occasion of his first visit. Inside all was darkness but his groping hand soon found the object for which he sought, and without further delay he turned again toward the door. He had taken but a step, however, 
ere his quick ear caught the sound of approaching footsteps immediately without. In another instant, the figure of a woman darkened the entrance of the hut. Tarzan drew back silently to the far wall, and his hand sought the long, keen hunting knife of his father. The woman came quickly to the center of the hut. There she paused for an instant, feeling about with her hands for the thing she sought. Evidently it was not in its accustomed place, for she explored ever nearer and nearer the wall where Tarzan stood. So close was she now that the ape-man felt the animal warmth of her naked body. Up went the hunting knife, and then the woman turned to one side, and soon the guttural, ah, proclaimed that her search had at last been successful. Immediately she turned and left the hut, and as she passed through the doorway, Tarzan saw that she carried a cooking pot in her hand. He followed closely after her, and as he reconnoitered from the shadows of the doorway, he saw that all the women of the village were hastening to and from the various huts with pots and kettles. These they were filling with water and placing over a number of fires near the stake where the dying victim now hung, an inert and bloody mass of suffering. Choosing a moment when none seemed near, Tarzan hastened to his bundle of arrows beneath the great tree at the end of the village street. As on the former occasion, he overthrew the cauldron before leaping, sinuous and cat-like, into the lower branches of the forest giant. Silently he climbed to a great height until he found a point where he could look through a leafy opening upon the scene beneath them. The women were now preparing the prisoner for their cooking pots, while the men stood about resting after the fatigue of their mad revel. Comparative quiet reigned in the village. Tarzan raised aloft the thing he had pilfered from the hut, and with aim made true by years of fruit and coconut throwing, launched it toward the group of savages. Squarely among them it fell, striking one of the warriors full upon the head and felling him to the ground. Then it rolled among the women and stopped beside the half-butchered thing they were preparing to feast upon. All gazed in consternation at it for an instant, and then, with one accord, broke and ran for their huts. It was a grinning human skull which looked up at them from the ground. The dropping of the thing out of the open sky was a miracle well aimed to work upon their superstitious fears. Thus Tarzan of the Apes left them filled with terror at this new manifestation of the presence of some unseen and unearthly evil power which lurked in the forest about their village. Later, when they discovered the overturned cauldron, and that once more their arrows had been pilfered, it commenced to dawn upon them that they had offended some great god by placing their village in this part of the jungle without propitiating them. From then on an offering of food was daily placed below the great tree from whence the arrows had disappeared in an effort to conciliate the Mighty One. But the seed of fear was deep sown, and had he but known it, Tarzan of the Apes had laid the foundation for much future misery for himself and his tribe. That night he slept in the forest not far from the village, and early the next morning set out slowly on his homeward march, hunting as he traveled. Only a few berries and an occasional grub worm rewarded his search, and he was half famished when, looking up from a log he'd been rooting beneath, he saw Saber, the lioness, standing in the center of the trail not twenty paces from him. The great yellow eyes were fixed upon him with a wicked and baleful gleam, and the red tongue licked the longing lips as Saber crouched, 
worming her stealthy way with belly flattened against the earth. Tarzan did not attempt to escape. He welcomed the opportunity for which, in fact, he had been searching for days past, now that he was armed with something more than a rope of grass. Quickly he unslung his bow and fitted a well-daubed arrow, and a saber sprang. The tiny missile leaped to meet her in midair. At the same instant, Tarzan of the Apes jumped to one side, and as the great cat struck the ground beyond him, another death-tipped arrow sunk deep into Saber's loin. With a mighty roar, the beast turned and charged once more, only to be met with a third arrow full in one eye. But this time she was too close to the ape-man for the latter to sidestep the onrushing body. Tarzan of the Apes went down beneath the great body of his enemy, though with gleaming knife drawn and striking home. For a moment they lay there, and then Tarzan realized that the inert mass lying upon him was beyond power ever again to injure man or ape. With difficulty he wriggled from beneath the great weight, and as he stood erect and gazed down upon the trophy of his skill, a mighty wave of exultation swept over him. With swelling breast he placed a foot upon the body of his powerful enemy, and throwing back his fine young head, roared out the awful challenge of the victorious bull ape forest echoed to the savage and triumphant sound. Birds fell still, and the larger animals and beasts of prey slunk stealthily away, for few there were of all the jungle who sought for trouble with the great anthropoids. And in London, another Lord Greystoke was speaking to his kind in the House of Lords, but none trembled at the sound of his soft voice. Saber proved unsavory eating even to Tarzan of the Apes, but hunger served as the most efficacious disguise to toughness and rank taste, and ere long, with a well-filled stomach, the ape-man was ready to sleep again. First, however, he must remove the hide, for it was as much for this as any other purpose that he had desired to destroy Saber. Deftly he removed the great pelt, for he had practiced often on smaller animals. When the task was finished, he carried his trophy to the fork of a high tree, and there, curling himself securely in a crotch, he fell into deep and dreamless slumber. What with loss of sleep, arduous exercise, and a full belly, Tarzan of the Apes slept the sun around, awaking about noon on the following day. He straightway repaired to the carcass of Saber, but was angered to find the bones picked clean by the other hungry denizens of the jungle. Half an hour's leisurely progress through the forest brought to sight a young deer, and before the little creature knew that an enemy was near, a tiny arrow had lodged in its neck. So quickly the virus worked that at the end of a dozen leaps the deer plunged headlong into the undergrowth, dead. Again did Tarzan feast well, but this time he did not sleep. Instead he hastened on toward the point where he had left the tribe, and when he had found them, proudly exhibited the skin of Saber, the lioness. Look! he cried. Apes of Kerchak, see what Tarzan, the mighty killer, has done. Who else among you has ever killed one of Numa's people? Tarzan is mightiest among you, for Tarzan is no ape. Tarzan is... But here he stopped, for in the language of the anthropoids there was no word for man, and Tarzan could only write the word in English. He could not pronounce it. The tribe had gathered about to look upon the proof of his wondrous prowess and listen to his words. Only Kerchak hung back, nursing his hatred. 
and his rage. Suddenly, something snapped in the wicked little brain of Kerchak. With a frightful roar, the great beast sprang among the assemblage. Biting and striking with his huge hands, he killed and maimed a dozen ere the balance could escape to the upper terraces of the forest. Frothing and shrieking in the insanity of his fury, Kerchak looked about for the object of his greatest hatred, and there, upon a nearby limb, he saw him sitting. "'Come down, Tarzan, great killer!' cried Kerchak. "'Come down and feel the fangs of the greater!' Do mighty fighters fly to the trees at the first approach of danger? And then Kerchak emitted the volleying challenge of his kind. Quietly Tarzan dropped to the ground. Breathlessly the tribe watched from their lofty perches as Kerchak, still roaring, charged the relatively puny figure. Nearly seven feet stood Kerchak on his short legs. His enormous shoulders were bunched and rounded with huge muscles. The back of his short neck was as a single lump of iron sinew which bulged beyond the base of his skull, so that his head seemed like a small ball protruding from a huge mountain of flesh. His back-drawn, snarling lips exposed his great biting fangs, and his little, wicked, bloodshot eyes gleamed in horrid reflection of his madness. Awaiting him stood Tarzan, himself a mighty muscled animal, but his six feet of height and his great rolling sinews seemed pitifully inadequate to the ordeal which awaited them. His bow and arrows lay some distance away where he had dropped them while showing Saber's hide to his fellow apes, so that he confronted Kerchak now with only his hunting knife and his superior intellect to offset the ferocious strength of his enemy. As his antagonist came roaring toward him, Lord Greystoke tore his long knife from its sheath and with an answering challenge as hard and blood-curdling as that of the beast he faced, he rushed swiftly to meet the attack. He was too shrewd to allow those long, hairy arms to encircle him, and just as their bodies were about to crash together, Tarzan of the apes grasped one of the huge wrists of his assailant and, springing lightly to one side, drove his knife to the hilt into Kerchak's body, below the heart. Before he could wrench the blade free again, the bull's quick lunge to seize him in those awful arms had torn the weapon from Tarzan's grasp. Kerchak aimed a terrific blow at the ape-man's head with the flat of his hand, a blow which, had it landed, might easily have crushed in the side of Tarzan's skull. But the man was too quick, and ducking beneath it, himself delivered a mighty one with clenched fist in the pit of Kerchak's stomach. The ape was staggered, and what with the mortal wound in his side, had almost collapsed when, with one mighty effort, he rallied for an instant, just long enough to enable him to wrest his arm free from Tarzan's grasp and close in a terrific clinch with his wiry opponent. Straining the ape-man close to him, his great jaws sought Tarzan's throat, but the young lord's sinewy fingers were at Kerchak's own before the cruel fangs could close on the sleek brown skin. Thus they struggled, the one to crush out his opponent's life with those awful teeth, the other to close forever the windpipe beneath his strong grasp while he held the snarling mouth away from him. The greater strength of the ape was slowly prevailing, and the teeth of the straining beast were scarce an inch from Tarzan's throat, when, with a shuddering tremor, the great body stiffened for an instant and then sank limply to the ground. Kerchak was dead. 
Withdrawing the knife that had so often rendered him master of far mightier muscles than his own, Tarzan of the Apes placed his foot upon the neck of his vanquished enemy, and once again, loud through the forest rang the fierce, wild cry of the conqueror. And thus came the young Lord Greystoke into the kingship of the apes. Next week, Chapter 12, Man's Reason, from Tarzan of the Apes. We hope you enjoyed our show today. Please do send us a review at 1001 Stories for the Road. We appreciate reviews very, very much. And if you like our stories, please do support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. We appreciate your support and we need it very much in order to change 1001 to 2001 Stories. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon. And here are three new reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road. This one... Five stars. Love it. Great voice. That from Lubby502, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, five stars. All stories. Outstanding. I can hardly wait for the next broadcast. Fritz19, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, five stars. Beautiful. Awesome. A must-have in your podcast selection. That one from Chester316, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, Five stars. Tarzan, chapters three through five. Wow, what a great story and great job of reading it. I'm in gripped suspense till the next chapters. Don't take too long. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. At first, I found John Hagedorn's narration surprising, but now I love, love, love it and look forward to downloading a new installment each week. He sounds like a great guy. Thank you for doing what you do with so much enthusiasm and dedication. That one from Amic 5008, Apple Podcasts, Australia. And this one, excellent, five stars. All the 1001 podcasts provide excellent entertainment. They add so much to a solo walk and pass the time when engaged in yard work. Thank you for hours of classic literature read in a most pleasing way. Thank you very much, all of you. I do appreciate reviews very, very much. <laughs>